This will be a good time to read our scripture for the day. If you'll remain standing, go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Today we'll be reading verses 13 through 17. That's 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Turn there in your Bibles to what Jamie read for us, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. That's our teaching text this morning. We'll see there in verse 13, the first verse in our teaching text, it's a, a purpose statement. It's why John wrote this letter to the Christians in and around Ephesus. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is why he wrote this letter. And purpose statements are really, really helpful. Just having a purpose in doing something is helpful. I, I remember as a, a child, my dad, he didn't want me to have too much free time, uh, and so he would give me chores to do. And one of the things that we had to do, that I had to do is... Um, I had a, a part of our pasture. We always had a horse or horses. And so we had a part of the pasture that would grow up and in briars and, and Johnson grass and whatnot. And so uh, there's several different times where my dad says, get the sling blade. We had a sling blade and a Kaiser blade. If you don't know young boys, if you don't know what a sling blade and a Kaiser blade is, your father's um, not teaching you very well. So today you need to show your son what a Kaiser blade and a sling blade is. And, um, and let them use that for a short time. Well, my dad uh, would tell me, I need you to go out in that pasture and all, all those places where those briars and Johnson grass has grown up, I need you to, I want you to sling blade that down. Now, two different occasions that he told me to do that. One time he told me, I need you to go out there and cut that with that, the Kaiser blade and the sling blade because when you do, the grass is going to grow and that's going to have more for the horses to graze on. But there was time I think he was upset with me. Maybe I was complaining because I was bored or something like that. He just gave me this chore to do. And he said, I said, why do we need to do that? He says, because I said so. Well, for a 10, 11, 12-year-old boy, that's not much of a purpose because daddy said so. And as a, you know, I was real little uh, anyway. And so I was out there and it's, you know, 95 degrees and the, the, the briars and the, the Johnson grass was, you know, this tall. As an adult, you know, you go out there in just a couple of hours and get that done. But as a, a young boy, it took a long time. So it was really helpful if Dad said, well, we're going to cut those weeds down so more grass will grow so the horses will have more to graze on. That was motivating, right? But when Dad says you knew he was getting on to you and punishing you, do it because I said so, that was not very motivating. 
So having a purpose in doing something is really, really helpful. And we have these purpose clauses in the Bible. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 is one of them. What's the purpose? Why is he writing this letter? So that believers in these churches where these false teachers had left from could have assurance and know that they have eternal life. Now we see this elsewhere. John does this in his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, it's a purpose clause, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John writing the gospel, his purpose is so people can come to faith. It's evangelistic, so people can believe People can trust Christ and be saved. But here in the epistle, 1 John, he's writing these things so the believers, people who have already believed, could have assurance and have confidence before the Lord. Think about those outside the kingdom of God, those who are not believers. We, need to, we don't need to misunderstand the letter. Those outside the church... They should hear this letter being taught and being read, and they should be convicted of their lack of righteousness, right? Their lack of morality, their lack of love for the church, brothers and sisters in the church, and also for their anemic and, and faulty Christology, their misunderstanding of who Jesus was, not embracing the biblical Christ. So some went out from them, right, because they weren't part of the church, People who are lost, when they hear this letter, the hope is they'll hear this letter being taught and they'll know they failed these tests that John has given the church, recognizing they, they don't understand who Jesus is. They haven't embraced him as Lord and Savior. They're not loving the brothers, right? They're not living a righteous, moral life. But what John has been doing, especially here at the end of the letter, he's helping the believers here to have assurance, to know that they know the Lord, they have confidence before him. John doesn't want them to doubt. He wants them to be assured and given confidence before God. So the first thing we see here, verse 13, is have confidence that you have eternal life. If you're a believer, if you've embraced Christ, have confidence that you have eternal life. There's a group that... Play, claimed to be Christian, but they had separated from the church. And you can understand how someone who was a part of the church, and some of these people probably were pretty moral, good folks, possibly. And when they're a part of the church, and they've been a part of the church for some time, and then they leave the church, you can understand how that might rattle some. Well, man, them, them the good people. Man, if they left the church, if they're not saved, well, maybe I'm not saved either. You can see how that would happen. And that happens, does it, in our lives. As we, as we rebel against the Lord and we have a time of, uh, of a rebellion, of, of doing what we want to do, living in the flesh, the Scripture calls it, sometimes there's, there's, our cage gets rattled, right? As Chris was saying, there, the, because we have, we're believers, we have the Spirit living in us, there's conviction of sin, and sometimes our lifestyle, the way we live, lack of obedience can cause us for a moment to question, wow, can I really can I really say that? Can I really do that and be a believer? So you understand how people can, can doubt and have struggles in, with their assurance. 
But John wants these brothers and sisters to, to know that they're a believer and have confidence before the Lord. And it's not arrogant, I don't think, or, or prideful to have confidence in your salvation. It's not presumptuous either, unless you're looking at yourself, right? If you look to yourself for eternal life, you look to something you've done to qualify you to earn salvation, well, that will be arrogant and presumptuous. And there's people in the world that are arrogant and presumptuous, that aren't believers, right, that should have no assurance. It's, it's like the salesman that Dan, last week in our small group, Dan Miller was sharing about this salesman on the phone. And I love Dan. He gets pretty creative. He looks for opportunities to share the gospel. So he's talking to the salesman on the phone, and he just brought up the old evangelism explosion question he uses all the time. He loves EE, and he thinks it's very helpful, and I do too. I use this question all the time. So he asked the salesman after he kind of got finished his sales pitch, he said, well, if you stood before the Lord, hypothetical situation, if you stood before the Lord and he said, why shall I let you into heaven, what would you say? And Dan tells us immediately, he, he said, that guy said, well, I know exactly what I would say. He said, well, I said I was a good person. I did this, and I helped this person. I did da 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 He rattled off all these things he had done. What do you know from his answer? You know that this man most likely doesn't have eternal life because he has no clear faith in the biblical Jesus, right? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith, right? Those who are trusting in what Christ has done for them on the cross, they can know they have eternal life because we're trusting in Christ's work and God's promises, right? And that's going back to verse 13. He's writing these things to those who believe so that they can know they have eternal life, right? Assurance comes because we believe. Those that believe um, rightly about Jesus, those who love others in the church, those who live a, a, a righteous life, they're, they're God's commands directing their lives, they can have assurance, and they should have assurance. But in regard to salvation, we look towards, towards Christ, right? And he is sufficient. God's promises in Christ are trustworthy. If we confess our sin, he is faithful unto us to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. In regard to salvation, every time we look at ourselves, we need to look, take 10 or 20 looks towards Jesus. How do you know that you're a believer? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know you're going to heaven? Because I've trusted Christ. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he lived for me and he died for me. He was buried and he rose from the dead so that I could be justified. Is that arrogance? Presumption? No, I'm trusting Christ. I'm trusting Jesus. What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? What's your hope? You betting your eternity on what? What you've done, what you haven't done, the goodness you have? I don't think so. Believers, if we're trusting in Christ, let's have confidence. Yeah, we can know that we have eternal life because of our faith in Jesus. Second thing, verse 14 and 15, we need to have confidence in prayer. You know, I think there's a deep-rooted instinct for prayer buried in each one of us. 
put in a stressful situation under the right circumstances, it's going to come out. That's why they say in, in war there's no atheist in foxholes. Under the pressure of danger, what's, there's an innate desire for us to cry out to a God who can help us. Ray Steadman, he tells of hearing a, a sea captain who described this violent storm, and he said, God heard from plenty of strangers that night. People who didn't know the Lord lived their lives in rebellion against the Lord, but what did they do when that storm came? Ooh, help us, Lord, right? Yeah. And usually confidence is not something we usually associate with prayer. Oftentimes we don't. In fact, usually prayer occurs when there's no other alternative. We're at the hospital and the doctors say there's nothing else we can do for this person. And so what do you say? All we can do now is pray, right? Yeah, we don't always associate confidence with prayer, but, but we need to have confidence in prayer. Our Heavenly Father wants us to pray. Luke chapter 11, verse 9 through 13, right after Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who finds, who, who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if you ask for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, speaking of people like us, right, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God wants us to come to him boldly. Our, our boldness in prayer is, is very much tied to our assurance of salvation. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16 let us then with confidence, with confidence, with assurance, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. God wants us to come to him boldly. If you don't have eternal life, if you don't have assurance of your salvation, can you draw near to the Lord with boldness and confidence? This promise that we see here in verses 14 and 15 are for believers. And this is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. We see this, something similar mentioned in John's gospel. John chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, a few verses here. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, verses 7, and then verses 16. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide, should abide, so that whatever you ask in my Father in my name, he may give it to you. Sounds very Similar to what we see in First John, doesn't it? John 16, 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Now, context is so important in all genres of Scripture, but especially the epistles. And people often take verses 14 and 15 out of context they erroneously think that if they have enough faith, they'll get more stuff that'll make their lives easier. 
And to understand this text that way, Lily totally misses the point. The prosperity false gospel preachers, they get it all wrong. Notice it says, according to his will. If we ask anything according to his will. See, prayer is the means that God uses to give his people what he wants them to have, not what we want us to have. He wants us to bend our wills to his, not him build his, bend his will to ours. Okay? So John Stott, he says, prayer is not a convenience, convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of sub- subordinating our will to his. When we go to prayer, what are we doing? Every time we go to prayer, we're submissively coming to him with request, right? Humbly. You can help, you can help, you can help, right? It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done. And Jesus is our exemplar. He he taught his disciples how to pray. When they asked him to teach them about prayer in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, part of that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we see Jesus doing this, don't we? In Gethsemane, he's about to go to the cross. He's about to be separated from the Father. The Father's about to pour out his wrath upon the Son for sinners, for the church. What does he say in Mark 14, 36? Jesus, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He recognizes his omnipotence, right? All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. You see the Son here being subjected to the Father's will. So we ask for things we need. What does God do? He he gives them to us according to his will. And what's his will for his children? For all things to work out for our good. Isn't it interesting? We, 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 don't work, we don't pray for difficulty. How many of you pray for difficulty? Lately. God, give me a hard day today that I'll be like you tonight. Anybody prayed that lately? But sometimes that's what we need. And sometimes that's what we get. Because that's the Lord's will. Psalm 23, this psalm that you most of you know. Verse 1 and 2, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, right? God doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. I shall not want. That doesn't mean we get what we, everything we desire, but it, he gives us what we need. And then he, the next line, what's he do? He takes us to green pastures and waters, right? Still waters. That's what sheep need, food and drink. But then verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's a, not a pleasant experience, is it? He says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God, God doesn't give us what we want, but what we need, right? Sometimes we go through dark valleys, but through those valleys, as we go through those difficulties, we're comforted, Right? Ray Stedman again, he says a Christian life, 
a Christian's life is characterized by truth, love, and righteousness. Those three tests in 1 John. And prayer is the perfect expression of all three of these. Love is prayer's motive. Truth is its expression and righteousness its goal. But what, what about when we don't know God's will? Do we always know God's will? Sometimes we don't. We don't know how to pray as we all. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Well, this is helpful. Because we, we live life, right? We're finite. We can't see the future. We can't see what's coming next, right? We're not infinite in knowledge, wisdom. We're finite. And so what do we do? We pray the best we can, but yet sometimes we don't know God's will. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And what the Spirit asks, we always receive, because the Spirit's always interceding in accordance to God's will. Isn't that a great comfort? We don't know how to pray sometimes. We don't know what to pray for. And we ask for the wrong things because we ask for comfort and help and ease. But the Spirit interceding for us, asking for what we need, and we always receive exactly what we need. Lost people don't have that. If you're here and you, you've yet to bow the knee to Christ, you've yet to embrace the biblical Jesus, surrender your life to Him in confession and repentance and faith, you, the Spirit, you don't have the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't intercede for you. You're on your own. But for us believers, we have confidence in prayer because even we don't know how to pray, what's the Spirit do? He intercedes for us. So God's will is accomplished in our lives. So we should have confidence in prayer. Even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes and God's will is done in our lives. Isn't that great? And it's, it's, a, it's a mystery, isn't it? It's, it's difficult because we, 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 we sing these songs, Lord, I need you. I lay it all on Jesus. That's man's responsibility, right? We pray, we pray, we submit to God and yield to him in prayer. It's a, coming to God in prayer is a, an act of worship. It's something we should do continually, regularly, habitually. But yet you see the sovereignty of God even in our prayers as we pray the things that that aren't in accordance to His will, the Spirit intercedes and we receive the will of God in our lives. Isn't that something? That gives us confidence in prayer. But look at verse 16 and 17. We should also have confidence in prayer as we pray for other believers. Again, praying for the church. Look at verse 16. If, any, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. On the other hand, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Another one of them head scratchers, huh? <laughs> you're, this is the day you're like, yeah, I'm glad he's the preacher. I have no idea what that's talking about. Um, what is the sin not leading to death? We read this and we want to know more from John, right? But I think what he's, what he's saying here. When you become aware of a brother's and sister's struggle with sin and you pray and intercede for them, God is going to hear you as you intercede for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And God uses those prayers to help them persevere in their faith. 
See, our prayers are part of the means God uses to help our brothers and sisters persevere in their faith. You say, well, if God's will is accomplished anyway, then why should we pray? Well, it's a means to, the, to that end, right? We have man's responsibility, a believer's responsibility to obey the Lord in prayer, come to the Lord humbly, interceding for brothers and sisters, but yet we know that God is sovereign even over our prayer lives, and God's will will be done. And those are married together in this mysterious marriage. And we get to be a part of that. So we're responsible for carrying out the means. So in small group already this morning, we had prayer time, right? Chris's small group broke up men praying and confessing sin and sharing things. Ladies, you're confessing sin and you're praying for one another. Hey, as we confess our sins and we're praying for one another, God is, that's the means to an end. God is using the prayers as we pray for one another to help us. For God to accomplish his will in our lives, for us to be sanctified, us to be like Christ. What about the sin that leads to death then? Okay, what's that? There's a lot of sins that don't lead to death, right? It's our things we struggle with. Hey, I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with, with uh, laziness. I'm struggling with apathy and indifference, right? What's the sin that leads to death? Well, there's some debate about that. Some of our Catholic friends, they'll say that uh, they divide sins into two types. You have the mortal, that's the deadly sins or the unforgivable sins, right? They're so bad that you can't be forgiven for. And then divide them into the, the venial sins, right? Those are forgivable sins. Well, the only problem with that distinction is this, the Bible doesn't make a distinction. It's like, what's wrong with that other than it being wrong? Bible doesn't make a distinction. I mean, think about if murder and adultery and theft and idolatry, if those can't be forgiven, David, Solomon, Peter, Paul, and maybe all of us are left out. We'll be in hell forever. I don't think that's what that's referring to. And some, some say, and it, it maybe some of you, is, is the sin that leads to death Maybe you thought about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Some of you probably did. Mark chapter 3, verse 22, he had a conflict with the scribes and Pharisees. He had many conflicts with them. They came down from Jerusalem and saying, he's been casting out demons, right? Jesus possessed by Beelzebub and the prince of the demons. He cast out the demons. And then Jesus responds in verse 28 through 30, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, so here's the qualifier, he has an unclean spirit. So what is that all about? Well, they're attributing to Satan something that God was doing. Is that what this sin that leads to death referring to? I don't think so. Others say that the sin that leads to death is actual physical death. I mean, think about it. Who in the Bible died because of their sin? Anybody? Children? Thoughts? Anybody? Seth? Anybody? My kids are like, don't put me on the spot. I think that's a stupid rule for a preacher's household. Why could I not put my kids on the spot? They're preacher's kids. They're supposed to know all these answers anyway, right? Anybody? Anybody? Think of 
Mr. Mickey, come on. Eli. Yeah. Eli. What was, he, what was he put to death for? Well, he died because he did not correct his children that were doing all kinds of wrong things. And then when God killed them, then he fell off the broken head when he heard the news of it. Big old rascal fell off his chair and died. Yeah. Who else? His two sons, right? They were his two sons. Who else? Well, that, that's true, but I, yeah, but I'm I'm talking about someone in the in the Bible that was actually put to physical death, not spiritual death per se, but physical death because of their sin. I mean, think about the Corinthians. Yeah, yeah. Think about the the, the Corinthians. They were taking the Lord's supper in an unworthy manner, and what Paul say? Because of this, some of you have have been become sick, and some of you have actually died. So some people think this sin that leads to death is actual physical death. Or think about Achan. Remember Achan? In Jericho, God says, don't, don't, there's, don't take any of the spoils. But what did he do? He took some of them and, and, and buried them in his tent. The next battle, they utterly destroyed Jericho, right? God did. The walls came tumbling down. They destroyed that city, everything in it. But the next battle... They fight against I. 36 Israelites died. They're like, what, what's going on here? Somebody sinned. It was found out to be Achan. And what did they do with Achan? They took him out and everything he owned and they stoned him to death. Yeah. 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 Reached out and touched the ark. Several did that. What about, um, what about Ananias and Sapphira? Right? Now, some people say, was, were they. Believers, they not believers. Well, they're part of the church. I don't know, but because of their sin, God struck them down dead. So some, yeah, yeah. Some say some say sin that leads to death or actually physical death, and and that's a possibility. But I think, given the context of First John, I think you'll understand when we get finished. We may not agree on on this exactly, but I think the the, the best understanding of this text would be the. In context, think about the people that were that were once a part of the church, but they had left the church. Why do they leave the church? Because they were not part of the church. Remember that? They they left the church because they weren't a part of the church because they did not rightly embrace Christ. Remember the understanding that Jesus was he was a man, but he wasn't the God man. He the Spirit of Christ descended on him in his baptism, but before he was crucified, the, the Spirit of Christ left him. So when he died, he was actually just a man. He wasn't the God-man, right? That's the, the heresy, the Gnostic heresy that was being taught in and around that church. So those people had left. I think the sin that leads to death is that sin. They didn't embrace Christ, the biblical Christ, the Christ that John taught them about. The, the Christ that Jesus, that, that John saw and heard and touched and lived with for three years. They didn't embrace him. And what was the result? They had left the church. They showed themselves to be outside the promise of eternal life. They could not be forgiven. They could not be forgiven because the once for all sacrifice for sin had been rejected. So we pray for one another as believers, and God uses those prayers to help us persevere in our faith. We can have confidence when we intercede for them. 
when I, when I pray for Elise and when she prays for me and I pray for Morgan and he prays for me, I pray for Jenny, Elizabeth, Debbie. We pray for one another. God uses those prayers to help us persevere. We have confidence. But we can't have the same confidence when we're deceived for the lost. God doesn't save those who renounce Christ. Does that mean we shouldn't pray for lost people? Well, no, of course not. We should pray for even our enemies, the Bible teaches. Of course we should pray for lost people. But the same obligation and effectiveness of our prayers are different for the believer and the prayer for the lost. The lost don't have the Son. They don't have eternal life. So when we pray, how should we pray for the lost? We pray that God would open their blind eyes and deaf ears. The enemy has them blinded. They're deaf. They're hearing the gospel, but they're not hearing it. They're reading the scriptures, but they're not seeing it. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul's heart for the, for the Jews. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that it may be, they may be saved. Do we pray for the lost? Of course we pray for the lost. You have lost children, lost parents, lost neighbors, lost classmates, lost teachers. We should pray for them. But we can't pray. When it, when it says, there's a sin that leads to death, I do not say that one should pray for that. What he's referring to there, I think, is that we can't pray that these folks who reject Jesus, they have an erroneous understanding of who Christ was and is. God, we don't pray that God would forgive them regardless or anyways, despite that fact. God doesn't save people apart from Christ. So we don't ask God to do what he says he won't do in his word. We have to pray according to his will. Does God save sinners apart from them embracing the biblical Jesus? No. He cannot and he Will not. So we don't ask God to do that. Do we pray for lost people? Of course we pray for lost people. Pray that their eyes are open, they hear the gospel. God would grant them faith and repentance and they would respond rightly to the Jesus John taught. So what do we do here, application-wise? I think, firstly, do you have the Son? Do you have eternal life? Do you have assurance that you are born again, that when you die you'll be with the Lord? If not, when you die, you'll receive the just payment for your sin. So when you're in hell, it'll be just and right and the perfect thing for God to do to pour out His wrath upon you, a sinner. So application for you is that you should repent and have life. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life and will not have life. Embrace the son. Embrace Jesus Christ. Embrace the Savior that we learn about in the Scriptures. I think for us believers, we should have confidence that we have eternal life. We read through this letter and we those three tests keep coming up over, 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 over again. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah, did I blow it this week? Yes, I did. When we had confession time, I confessed sin. But my life is steered by God's commands. I make decisions because I want to obey the Lord. Do I love the church? I love people. Not perfectly. I love Bryce. I love Uncle Ronnie. I love Carson. I have a, there isn't a love for the church. Are you embracing the biblical Jesus? I, 
So there should be an assurance. And it's not based on what we do, but because of our faith in Christ, we have this trajectory in our lives and direction our lives are going and we can have confidence. Yeah, we, we, we love the Lord. We've trusted Christ. I have an assurance because of what Christ has done for me. We also, by application, Reese, we should have confidence as we draw near the Lord in prayer. He wants us to come to Him in prayer. And the things we ask, if we ask according to His will, we receive those things. So we need to pray according to God's will. One of the ways we do that, so man, how in the world do we do that? One of the ways we do that is we pray with our Bibles open. Sometimes I come in here and I'll be just doing laps. My mind gets sidetracked if I'm sitting in here because I start wanting to start working. So I come in here and I do laps and sometimes I just carry the Bible and I open up the Psalms and in the the Psalms, I've got a green marker where I've read through the Psalms and I've, I've highlighted everything that I can pray. So most days I'll, I'll look at the Psalm and just pray some of those things, praying the Scriptures. We need to be confident in our prayer lives that even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. God's will is going to be done in our lives, using all things for our good and for His glory. We need to be confident in our petitions for one another. Know that God hears us, using those prayers as a means to keep our brothers and sisters in Christ. And for me, I ask you to pray. I pray uh, most days that I would not lose my testimony. You know, not everybody can pastor a church. Not everybody can be a shepherd. Qualifications for those are pretty narrow. And so I qualify, I think, but I, would, I don't want to be disqualified. So I ask God to protect my testimony. Morgan and I, we pray that often. Protect my testimony. Lord, guard my witness. Don't let me be in the flesh and blow it and disqualify myself from being a shepherd. So that's how you can pray for me. And I understand that as we, we talk about man's responsibility in prayer and God's sovereignty and how those things are, are wed together, it's, it's a little mysterious. And I understand that. And so our small groups, they'll be interesting next week. We'll have a lot to, to think about, John, and, and, and work on. Let me read this to you. In 1921, Thomas Edison, you know who Thomas Edison was? Kids, you know Thomas Edison? Gracious, what are we teaching our kids, man? Yeah, um, he said we, we don't know the millionth part of 1% about anything we don't know what water is exactly we don't know what light is we don't know what gravitation is we don't know what electricity is we don't know what heat is we have a lot of hypotheses about these things but that is all but we do not let our ignorance about all these things deprive us of their use the same way there's much we don't understand about prayer, of how God accomplishing his will and he's sovereign, but yet we have a responsibility to pray. We'll never understand that completely but until we get to glory, but we should not let that keep us from using prayer in accordance with what we do know. So this week, let's pray. Draw near Lord boldly because of what he's done for us, because he wants to hear us. Let's pray for the lost. Pray rightly for the lost, that they would embrace Christ, that they would see Christ for who He is. They would see their sin for what it is, and they would have their hearts broken, their lives wrecked until they embrace the Christ of the Bible. And let's pray for one another. As we know, 
our struggles, right? So well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good right now. You know, this is one of the things. Don't do this. Okay, some of you do it. So as I say this, maybe you'll, for this point on, not do this when you're having your prayer time. So, hey, how can we pray for one another? And you kind of go around to share. I, I get it. Sometimes you're not feeling real vulnerable. Maybe you've been in the flesh, or maybe you're just, you're just not feeling it that day. But you say, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Are you really? I don't think we're ever that good. But I understand everybody's not always vulnerable, and that's okay. But let's pray for one another and our needs. And that's why we have small group. And if you're here and you're not involved in a small group, I'd encourage you to be involved in a small group. Coming to worship, 1030 to 12, uh, being here for an hour, hour and a half, that's, a, that's hopefully the Lord's using your life. And it's a part of what we do, but it's not church. Churches living life together. You read in the New Testament, it's as we share our gifts, using our gifts in one another's lives, living life together. You'll see that's kind of the picture we see of the New Testament of church. So I encourage you to get involved in a small group if you're not involved in one. And get involved in people. You say, well, how do I know if I'm really involved or I'm really experiencing church? What well, does other people know what's going on in your life? And do you know what's going on in other people's lives? Are you, is your lives interconnected with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Where you're using your gifts in one another's lives and mutually encouraging one another. Is that going on? If not, you need to be experiencing church. And we have small groups. We, we met this morning, 930. We, we started small groups. We had small groups this morning. And there was, there's several going on tonight. But we encourage you. If you've got questions about that, you can see myself and Morgan. Um, we'd love to point you in the direction of a small group. Okay? If you've got questions about this text, it's a pretty, pretty difficult text. I had to work through that and think through what it's not. That's always a good thing. Well, what is this not? It can't mean what, you know, and mark those things off and then try to come to the right conclusion about what this text means. But God wants us to pray, and he wants us to have confidence in prayer. So let's do that this week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and dismiss us. We have several things going on. Wednesday night, uh, we'll start Beaver Kids. We'll do Beaver Kids this week. We're going to eat together and study together. If you're in a biblical care and discipleship, if you're an adult, uh, listen to Lesson 13, and we'll pick that up this week. We'll have a great time. In the back, there's a sign-up sheet for um, for the women's gathering. There's also a sign-up sheet if you want to help on with Thursday meals. We do that every other week, That this Thursday, this coming Thursday. If you want to help with that, uh, there's a sign-up sheet for that, or you can see Melanie Gross. Uh, it's a great ministry for our shut-ins. Great ministry. If you do that, you'll you won't do it once. If you do that, you'll do it. It's a sweet, sweet time. Um, got that going on. Uh, what else? Anything else? All right. Um, well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Okay, Father, we acknowledge that you're you're good to us, and we're not good to you oftentimes. And we're thankful for grace. We're thankful for mercy. We're thankful most of all for Jesus who did die that we could be set free, that we could be set free from the wrath that we deserve. We could be empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey. And Father, we are thankful. There's so many testimonies in this room of, of changed lives, of how we've embraced the biblical Jesus because of your mercy and grace in our lives. And we, we've been changed and we desire to obey and we, we, we do love people and we, we want to... Um, we want to continue to think rightly about Jesus. And we're thankful for the testimonies. But, Father, there's some here who maybe they're a child, maybe they're a student, maybe they're an adult, and they've yet to embrace Christ. And, Lord, that's the sin that leads to death. 
These lost sinners, they can't be saved. They can't be reconciled to you until they embrace Jesus. So I pray that you would open their spiritual eyes and ears to the gospel that they've heard today. Pray that you would save them. Grant them faith and repentance. May they understand their sin and understand who Jesus is. Embrace him today. And Father, for us as a church, may we have confidence in prayer this week as we live our lives in a hostile world. May we draw near to you often. You want to hear from us. Father, may we be prayerful people. And Father, you're using the prayers of our church in one another's lives. We pray that you continue to do that. Father, help us to be bold in prayer this week. Thank you for all the the servants of the church, people who are serving and giving and sacrificing. Thank for those who are teaching children's church and small groups and helping on Wednesday nights. So many that are sacrificing their time to help do the work of the church. Bless us. Use us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.